All right, welcome back everyone to the Long Lens Podcast. This is the podcast where I answer questions from my YouTube community and just talk about filmmaking and YouTube. And I know I always say that I just answer questions from my YouTube community, but honestly, I kind of feel like I interact with my YouTube community a lot with this podcast, which is pretty sweet. And I do have to apologize. There are yard workers outside my apartment complex, so you might hear that a little bit in the background. And I don't normally ask this, but if you feel so inclined, it'd be really cool if you liked this podcast, rated it, maybe left a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to it on. That would really help this podcast grow. We have a pretty good size audience, which I'm pretty stoked on. And yeah, it'd be just really cool if we could grow this podcast a little bit. It's kind of just kind of like a fun little side thing that I'm doing, but I'm actually having a lot of fun doing it. So first, let's get into the questions. We actually have a lot of questions this month. And as always, I'm going to be answering my Patreon questions first. If you would like to join everyone over on Patreon, you get your questions answered first and I give you a little shout out in the podcast. So it's one of the perks. The first question is from Christian Stenner and Christian asks, when using a camera that's not weather sealed, but you want to shoot in the rain or wet conditions, did you find a workaround for that? In my case, it's the Panasonic G7. It's the only thing I regret about buying the G7, but it makes me consider switching to the GH5. I feel like in very light rain, I I feel like even non-weather sealed cameras would do okay. There are some rain shields for cameras that you kind of like stick both of your hands through and it's like this plastic uh, type of material that you can just kind of stick your camera in if you really needed to film outside. But yeah, having a weather sealed camera is pretty nice. That's one of the reasons why I like the GH3 so much because when I had the GH3 and like the 12 to 35 millimeter lens, I could go out even in rain and film because both the lens and the camera were weather sealed. So it could be a good idea to switch over to the GH5 eventually. In the meantime, I would just say be very careful with how much rain gets on your G7. And if you really did want to go film in super wet conditions, then getting a cheap rain guard for your camera could be a option for you. So the next question is from Joel Kimball. And Joel asks, I remember you saying that you used to do weddings, but now you don't. Is there a reason? I have a normal nine to five, but have recently started booking weddings. The money is great, and for the most part, they are fun, and I have a good degree of creative freedom. But I have a gut feeling that it's not something I'll do for life. Also, do you think you'll upgrade to full frame? And if you do, can you get a Sony A7 or A7S? It's such a struggle to get the look I want on mine, and would be awesome if you had some tutorials. Yeah, so I did used to do weddings back in the day, and I liked them for the most part. I really didn't like editing them. That was like, even though that's kind of where you bring in your your own style and your story. The whole editing process was just, I don't know, I dragged my feet a lot. It was just kind of hard to feel creatively inspired for me when you know came to weddings. I still don't think that I would ever go back to them. It would have to be a really special situation where I would film a wedding again. There are certain people who make their entire career off of filming weddings and they do really well for themselves. If you're interested in filming weddings and you have a Sony camera, the one person that I would obviously suggest is Matt Johnson. His YouTube channel deals with Sony cameras and shooting weddings for a living. So if you are considering that, definitely go check him out. But if I do move up to full frame, I might be going to Sony. Honestly, I don't really see myself doing that anytime soon. And yeah, as far as doing, you know, Sony a7 III or a7S III tutorials, again, Matt Johnson is the guy to go to if you want to learn more about that. So those are all the questions from the Patreon group. Uh, Tony Sellium was asking where you access this podcast. And yeah, this is available on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and Spotify. All right, now we're going to go into the YouTube community questions. And we got quite a few, so hopefully this won't take too long. 
All right, so the first question, how do you use a top handle on a DSLR and what are the techniques to maximize its usage? I would like to know things like when to use it and when not to use it. Yeah, so when I use a top handle, it's typically for low angle shots or just, you know, hip shots, like shots from the hip, but I also just use it as a way to grab my camera and tote it around. I've mentioned this before, but I came from a skateboard filming background. So most of the cameras that I used back in the day had top handles on it. I'm very used to holding a camera that way, but it can be a way to just better grip the camera to get certain angles. Sometimes when you're holding the camera by the grip, it's not necessarily the most ergonomic way to be shooting from the hip like that. I mean, if you just imagine you're holding like a can of soap like how low can you actually bring your arm before that can of soda would start to spill, right? But when you're holding a top handle, you can, it's almost like holding a suitcase. If you pretend that like you're holding a suitcase, you can lower your arm all the way down, like below your knees and it feels totally natural. So that's the same way that I kind of think of a top handle. All right, what's one piece of filmmaking? I think they meant one piece of gear. What's one piece of filmmaking gear you wish existed, but doesn't? Honestly, I kind of wish that Sigma made a 10 millimeter F1.4 for APS-C and Micro Four Thirds cameras. That's kind of a lame answer, but that's what I wish. Because I feel like that would kind of round out their their prime lenses for their micro four thirds and APS-C lineup. Like they have the 56, the 30, and the 16, but they don't have any like super wide or just normal wide for micro four thirds. So that's what I kind of wish existed. Yeah, I know that the Panasonic 9mm exists and I know that there's Lawa lenses and Mikey lenses and whatnot, but I kind of like having all one brand of lenses when I'm shooting. So that's one piece of, of gear that I kind of wish existed. And Sigma, if for some reason anyone at Sigma is listening to this podcast, please make like a 10 mil or something. Even an 11 millimeter would be great if we just had something wide, the same colors and contrast and glass as all the other Sigma lenses. Make it weather sealed, that'd be sweet. Have you made any money in selling stock footage? Any advice if so? Just picked up a GH5 to document daily life. Curious about selling stock footage as a side hustle. I have not, well, I can't say I haven't made any money. I think I've made like $10 over the past like 10 years. So yeah, I made like a dollar a year selling stock footage. I don't have a huge library. I think I have it up on Shutterstock. For me, stock footage has never really worked out. If you look at the Of Two Lands channel, they sell stock footage and, you know, it doesn't, it seems to be working out for them more, but there's, there's other, you know, creators that I've seen like uh, Filmbot, I think his name is. He has a pretty big library of stock footage and he's barely made any money off of it. He's, you know, he says that like one freelance job pays him more than stock footage does in a year. So yeah, it can work for some people and not for others. I feel like it depends on like what you shoot. You know, going back to flow of Up Two Lands, you know, he shoots a lot of crazy stuff in crazy places that not a lot of people have access to. So his stuff probably sells a lot better than me living in Texas, you know, shooting landscapes here or whatever. So yeah, I don't have any experience. I think that it really just depends on what type of stock footage you're shooting. What's a good audio solution for Lumix GX85? I just ordered one as an upgrade from my Rebel T7 because I wanted something small to bring with me wherever I go and I want to start shooting videos. Really, I think I've answered this question kind of similarly to another camera, but the only option that you have when shooting good quality audio with the GX85 is shooting separate system sound. If you want better audio quality coming in when you're filming outside to the GX85, you can get like these stick-on windscreens and put them on the internal mics and that'll just cut down on wind noise, but you can't really do much as far as like the audio quality that's coming straight into the camera. 
So you have to shoot separate system sound. So you could go with something like the Instamic. I know that Emily over at Micro Four Nerds, she uses that with her GX85. I would just use like the Zoom H1N or something like that to record audio separately and then I'd just sync it up in post. That's really your only option. All right, will the Olympus EM1 Mark II paired with the Atomus Ninja V give you 4K60 recording capabilities? Someone who I think would know is Colin over at IMCE YouTube channel. He uses the EM1 Mark II as well, and he has a Ninja V, or at least he used to. And he actually did a video on how to get unlimited recording with the EM1 Mark II as well. So the only thing I will say is that you can get 8-bit 422 out of the EM1 Mark II when you're recording out to an external recorder. Is that gonna make a big difference? Probably not, but it is kind of cool that you can get a little bit more color information out of that camera if you record externally. All right, what is one project that you're working on or planning that is getting you excited? I'm working on putting together like a little coffee commercial for my buddy's company called Mall Grab Coffee. Uh, it's gonna be kind of like a montage ad, which I'm pretty stoked on. I have a skater here that I met that we're gonna shoot some skateboarding and some coffee stuff. So that's gonna be pretty fun. I'm gonna be shooting that in September, hopefully. And I'm really hoping to be able to do more like micro doc and spec ad stuff on my channel. Cause that's something that I'm kind of really into right now. All right, I love my BMPCC 4K and GX85 and the Blackmagic Pocket 4K has been an amazing production horse. However, my XLR jack broke recently and repairing it would be too expensive. I need to send it into the UK from Germany. So I was wondering if I should get another BMPCC 4K due to my existing gear or go back to APS-C or even full frame. Do you think that, that the Micro Four Thirds still has a future? And considering a bang for buck offering of the Lumix S5 or something like the Sony A6300, would you have still started with micro four thirds? It just depends. If all my stuff got stolen or something like that and I was starting again from scratch, I would probably go back to micro four thirds. I'd probably get like a GH5. And that's almost what I would recommend to you is if you know you have a GX85, the GH5 would probably pair with that camera pretty well. And I know not having XLRs on your BMPCC 4K is probably annoying, but you could still probably sell it and you know get enough for a used GH5. And if you like XLRs, I'm pretty sure the GH5 can work with that XLR adapter thing that you could buy in the future. So that's probably what I would do if I was in your situation. The GH5 still gives a really beautiful image and it's not like you're really gonna be missing much except for RAW. So that would be the only thing. If you were shooting ProRes 10-bit in your your Blackmagic Pocket, you're gonna see less dynamic range, but the GH5 can still hold its own and it has, you know, IBIS and stuff like that, which you're probably already used to if you have the GX85. So yeah, if I was starting out again, I'd probably go with the GH5. I wouldn't go with the A6300 just because of the overheating stuff and I live in a really hot climate now, so I couldn't deal with that. S5 is great, but I think that for my money, I'd probably rather stick with something like the GH5. All right, with your recent move to Texas, do you think it will change something in a creative aspect. Maybe more ideas, maybe less. Do you find more inspiration? Yeah, I kind of talked a little bit about this in the last Q&A podcast, but I'm definitely a little bit less inspired here in Texas. That's not to say that I don't like Texas. It's just a lot. I mean, my entire life I was living in the Northwest, you know? So it's like a lot of my filmmaking style has been molded by living in, you know, trees and mountains and stuff like that and camping a lot, which... You can't really do here. There's not, I mean, at least here in Dallas, you have to drive at least like three hours away to find any good camping spots. Whereas again, in Oregon, I could drive 40 minutes and be camping in the woods somewhere. So yeah, I'm a little bit less inspired, but it's definitely 
caused me to be more creative because I have restrictions now that I have to like figure out how to work around. So that is one thing that's kind of cool about like being here is that I've had to learn how to work with what I've got. All right, for filmmakers based in Dallas also, would you be down to meet up and do some filming, stories, ideas, experimenting with shots, etc.? Absolutely. If you live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and you want to meet up, you can just hit me up on Instagram. All right, would you ever do a review of the GoPro 10? Probably not. I'm not a GoPro hater. It's just I haven't really found or seen a GoPro that would make me want to sell or get rid of my Osmo Action and get the GoPro instead. Osmo Action works perfect for what it is, and I'm just not a huge action camera type of shooter. So I just use the the Osmo action for like BTS stuff and, you know, vloggy type stuff if I need it. All right. Hi, Nigel. I am an 18 year old filmmaker and I'm currently looking for my first camera. I'm thinking of getting the GH5 since it's an all arounder with great lens options. But for around the same price, I could also go with the Canon M50 Mark II, the Sony ZV-E10, etc. What would be your advice for an aspiring travel filmmaker slash YouTuber? Love your videos. Keep up the great work. Hey, thanks. I guess it really just depends on what type of video you're making. I know that I just talked about how I would recommend the GH5 to the person who had a, a Blackmagic Pocket 4K, but that was because they had a Blackmagic Pocket 4K and probably had a lot of lenses that could work on the GH5. If you're just starting out, it really just depends. The ZV-E10 and the M50 Mark II are great, but they shoot in 8-bit, so you're not going to be able to mess around with the colors as much. But they do have bigger sensors, so you'll get a much blurrier background. Both of those cameras have great autofocus, so you won't have to worry about you know, missing focus a lot, which is something that you probably would run into with the GH5. It just kind of depends. I would say like the GH5 is much more of like a filmmaker's tool. I know that a lot of DPs even, you know, have like a GH5 in their backpack just as like a little backup camera if they need, you know, quick, you know, pickup shots. Where I would guess a lot less, you know, serious professional cinematographers have an M50 in their backpack or a ZV-E10 even. So it just kind of depends. If you're more into like the whole vlogging type of stuff and you want to, you know, be a little bit more of like a YouTuber, then maybe the M50 or the ZV-E10 might be a better option. But I think that the GH5 is definitely a better all-arounder because it can, you know, be used as like a travel vlogging camera. I mean, just look at Levi Allen. He, you know, he vlogged with the GH5 for a really long time. It's just you're going to have to get used to not being able to rely on the autofocus. Other than the autofocus, the GH5 is essentially a perfect camera in my opinion. All right. If you were teaching a class on video production, what would be the topics you would cover? Yeah, if I was going to teach a class on video production, I think the first things that I would cover is lighting and next would be composition. Those are things that you can teach and demonstrate even if you're shooting with an iPhone. And then I think lastly, it would probably be cameras, like just the different sensor sizes, the different types of cameras, the different shooting modes, color depth, bit depth, all that kind of stuff would probably be like the last thing that I would cover because I'd want to make sure that like all of the other bases were fully understood before I even got into cameras. So yeah, I'd probably start with the stuff that I think is the most fun, which is like lighting and composition. Audio is another thing that like I could probably teach on, but I'm not like the best at. Uh, speaking of audio, I actually do have a little bit of a different setup. I'm recording into my Godox VDS-M2, which is a shotgun microphone that Godox sent me, which I'm going to be doing a review on, but I just have it plugged in to my iPad mini 4 via a little... USB to lightning adapter and I'm recording straight into GarageBand with the narrator setting. So I'm not using my Zoom H1 today. I'm using something a little bit different, which is kind of fun. 
Event videography is beginning to interest me, but I'd love some tips for gear and setup. Weddings in particular are of interest, but maybe corporate events too. As far as like gear and setup, one thing that you should definitely have is a couple of really good tripods with hopefully leveling heads, but those aren't necessarily like required, but fluid heads are definitely required if you're gonna be doing any kind of movement with event videography. And having a camera that doesn't have a record limit, that would be my second biggest requirement, and then fast zoom lenses. So if you're shooting on like an APS-C camera or even a full frame, having something at least a 2.8, maybe like a 24 to 70 and a 70 to 200 equivalent would be a good two lens combo if you're covering an event. For weddings, it's a little bit different because you're not just covering an event, you're also telling a story. And so you need lenses like prime lenses that can help you know create silhouettes and detail shots and stuff like that. So for weddings, I would definitely say 24 to 70, 70 to 200. Those are the pieces of gear that I would probably focus on the most is camera that doesn't have a record limit, good fluid head tripod, and fast lenses. And also you're gonna to wanna to worry about audio, getting separate audio recorders for everyone who's talking is probably the best way to go. All right, next question. One, will you ever post a video podcast for these episodes? And two, will you ever self film a video course? If not, do you have any to recommend? If this podcast really starts taking off, maybe I might start doing like a video version, but honestly, this is just kind of like a fun little side hobby for me. And I don't really wanna start another YouTube channel specifically for my podcast. And I definitely don't wanna post video podcast episodes on my main channel. So probably not gonna do any video podcasts in the foreseeable future. I have thought about making a video course specifically on YouTube lighting. So if that's something that would interest you, then yeah, definitely let me know. I don't really know other video courses that I would necessarily recommend because I haven't taken any video courses. The only courses that I think I could actually recommend are like camera courses by Caleb Pike. If you want to learn everything that you need to know about your camera and Caleb Pike has a video course on that, I would definitely say go and get one of his camera courses because those are probably going to teach you everything that you need to know about said camera. All right, as a full-time YouTuber, what is your breakdown percentage-wise of income? Not asking about hard numbers, just wondering about the different revenue streams and which one actually allow you to achieve living on YouTube. I'm at 15k subs with 150k views per month and with my current income from YouTube and affiliates I can't possibly see how I'll ever make a living even at 100k subs. This is a really good question and I think it brings back the topic that I was talking about about going full-time on YouTube is a really loaded question because what does full-time mean to you? So, so for me I went full-time when I hit about 80,000 subscribers on YouTube. I think I was about like 80 or 90,000. It was right during 2020. I was making a lot of money on YouTube, more than I was making on my day job. Quit my day job and I just kind of like rolled the dice and said, okay, I'm just gonna do this for as long as I can. And here we are two years later and I'm still doing it, which is sweet. But I don't have a lot of overhead, right? Like I don't have any student loans. I don't have a car payment. You know, I'm a pretty frugal person. Like I don't have a very expensive lifestyle. I run and I skate which are two basically free things to do in my spare time. And yeah, I'm just, I'm not a very extravagant person. Neither is my wife. She has some student loans that we're paying off. But other than that, we have pretty low overhead and we don't live above our means. So it really just depends on like where you are financially. If you have a bunch of bills each month that have to be covered, and you're only making $1,000 a month on YouTube, then yeah, it's probably going to be a lot further off in the future to where you can actually go full time. But you know, it's going to be a lot different if you're living in the suburbs of Kansas than if you're living, you know, in the heart of LA, like going full time is very subjective. And it really just depends on like where you are 
in the world and where you are financially. But as far as my percentages, I would say probably like 10% of my income comes from Google AdSense. So not very much. I would probably say 50% right now comes from sponsorships. So what is that? We're at 60% now. And I would say 20% is affiliate links. And then another 20% would be digital products that I sell. So that's kind of like the breakdown of percentages. And yeah, you have to have a lot of different revenue streams in order to actually make it work. As you saw, like AdSense is not even, it's just like a little bonus. It's like 10% of my income. So, so focus on affiliate links, focus on getting sponsorships and figure out some kind of digital asset that you can sell that people actually want. All right, might be too late, but how time consuming is the Olympus breaking up of video files considering the EM1 Mark II? Yeah, so it really depends on which resolution you shoot in. So I shoot in cinema 4K, which gives me a slightly higher resolution than just UHD. So it cuts it up, I think, every three minutes. Isn't that big of a deal? It's not very time consuming for me because whenever I'm shooting long takes, I just bring all of those clips and just like play them like side by side in my timeline. But if you shoot in UHD, I think it's a lot longer. I think it's probably every like 10 minutes maybe. Don't quote me on that, but it's not that big of a deal, even though I never had to deal with that with my GH3 or even my G85, but really it's not really that big of a deal. All right, so that was all of the YouTube questions. Now let's go to Instagram. I did an Instagram ask yesterday just to get a couple more questions in and I got quite a few. So where do you see the lineup of your camera gear in the next two to four years? I could definitely see myself buying like a Blackmagic Pocket 4K or even maybe a Blackmagic Pocket Original just as kind of like my cinematic, you know, 10-bit color grading type camera. I do kind of miss shooting in 10-bit or even a Canon EOS M. I've just been on a real binge of like watching people's EOS M videos. And I found this one guy, I forget what his, his YouTube name is, but he just, the stuff he creates with his EOS M, like it looks like it's shot on an Alexa. Like it looks so good. And he's shooting it in 1080p raw. Even his stuff, like I think he's shooting with like some vintage lenses and you don't really see that much aliasing. So I might end up with an EOS M sometime soon because they're so cheap and fun to mess with. All right, what are the top five S5 lens options in your opinion? When I had the S5, I really liked the kit lens, the 20 to 60, that was really good. And if I had an S5 right now, I'd probably go with the, the Prime Lens Trio. So the 24, the 50, and the 85. Those came out just after I sold the S5, which I was kind of bummed on. But yeah, the 24, the 50, the 85, I'd probably be using the 24 a lot if I was still shooting YouTube videos with my S5. It's really nice focal length for YouTube videos. As far as a fifth one, I can't really think of one. I mean, if, I mean, I guess the 24 to 70 would be a great option. I think that lens is like $2,000. I would never buy it. But yeah, if money was no object, I'd buy the 24 to 70 and then that prime lens trio. Actually, scratch that. If I had the S5 again, I'd probably get the Sigma 28 to 70 f2.8. And there's a lot of people that have Sony cameras that use that on like their FX3. And I really like how it looks. So yeah, I'd probably go with the 28 to 70 by Sigma. Discuss how you control your camera when you film yourself. Yeah, it's pretty easy with the EM1 Mark II. I don't really have to mess with it because it has autofocus and I just set my exposure and sometimes I'll even use an external monitor and use false color and adjust my light so that my skin tones are lit correctly. But other than that, with the EM1 Mark II, I don't have to worry about much. With like a GH3 or a G85, I'd use a length controller to control the focus and start and stop my recording. I'd also sometimes use the app so I could see what I was doing. And uh, yeah, I would say use the app if you're camera has one because it's a really easy little field monitor that you can use to make sure that you're in focus and to make sure that you're exposed well. All right, have any exciting plans for fall? Well, I'm going back to Oregon next week 
from our little brother's wedding. So it's not really fall, but I'm excited about that. I get to be back in the mountains again. And as far as like this fall, I'm just excited to see what a Texas fall is like. I haven't really been here during the fall. I mean, I guess I was once back in 2020, but have you ever considered a medium format camera? Yeah, back in the day, I really wanted the Pentax 645D. I think that's, yeah, that's like the digital medium format camera that came out like back in like, I don't know, 2014 or something, 2015. I always wanted that camera because like the photos that came out of that were just amazing. And I was a really big fan of Joey Lawrence or Joey L as he's known online and he uses like a phase one. So I have wanted a medium format, but now it just would be too big and bulky and I'd get annoyed with it and it would just sit on my shelf. Your thoughts on making things that are meaningful versus following trends. Yeah, I think following trends will definitely get you noticed quicker. Whereas making things that you really wanna make, you're not, you're not gonna really get as much recognition. Like there are a lot of YouTubers that I follow that their stuff is just absolutely bonkers good, but they have a thousand subscribers or whatever. And I always kind of look at them as like, man, and it looks so good, but like, they're just not getting the recognition that they should be getting. Whereas like, you know, I follow trends sometimes, like I make stuff that I hope is beneficial for, you know, the community that I've, you know, surrounded myself with, but there are definitely pros and cons, I think to both, you know, one, you'll be a little bit more creatively fulfilled and one, you'll get a little bit more monetary value and a little bit more recognition from. So what's something you struggle with in the creative process of making a video? Like I really struggle with structure. I think sometimes it's hard for me to structure how I want the video to have a beginning, middle and end that's still engaging. There are a lot of things that I have to like cut out or add into my videos a lot of the time after the fact, just because I realized that like the way that I told the story or the way that I structured the video isn't as engaging as it could be. So that's one of the things that I struggle with the most. What do you think of the BMPCC 4K? Well, I love that camera. I think it's great. I used it for like a week back in 2020, I think. Not a very inspiring camera to shoot with, in my opinion, because it's just kind of a weird shape, And but it has a lot of really cool features. I just think it's kind of awkward. I wish they would make the BMPCC 4K, but in like a box format, because I don't really like the handling of that camera very much. What made you move from Oregon to Texas? Uh, I've answered this before, but just my wife's family. Her family lives down here and we just wanted to be closer to them for a while. Do you prefer nacho cheese or three bean dip? Definitely three bean dip. I'm not super into nacho cheese. Any plans to incorporate running into a video? Yeah, I would love to shoot a running video. So again, if you're in the Dallas Fort Worth area and you're a runner and you wanna work on like a little video project, that would be sick. As far as like my own running, absolutely not. I'm like not fast. I run strictly just because it's fun and it helps keep me in shape, but I'm not like a, I'm not a long distance runner or even a fast runner at that. All right, what is your biggest flaw as a filmmaker? I think that my biggest flaw is the imposter syndrome that I go through constantly. And I go through the same thing when it comes to skateboarding. Like I'm a pretty decent skateboarder and I feel like I'm above average when it comes to like skill on a skateboard, but I never think of myself that way. I always think that I like I suck in comparison to like everybody. And I kind of feel that way as a filmmaker as well, where it's just like, even if I am decent, I don't feel that way. Like I always see other people's work who have been doing it for less time and see how good their stuff is. And then I just think that like, oh, I'm like, why am I even doing this? So imposter syndrome is probably my biggest flaw because it's kind of 
constantly there in the back of my mind. How do you adapt to new locations? Example, clients and scouting spots for videos. So as far as clients, I really haven't had to deal with that for a while because I'm not freelance anymore. So I don't really have to worry about like finding clients. But as far as scouting spots for videos, I usually ask like here, I've been asking a lot of like local people like, hey, where can I go see a cityscape or where is a good skate spot, you know? So if you're in a new location, just making friends with local people that live here, I think is probably the biggest tip that I can give because obviously they're going to know the location a lot better than you. And I kind of did that for other people when I lived in Oregon. If they came up to film in Oregon, I would just tell them all the cool spots so that they could go and, you know, film for their project. So yeah, make friends or ask locals here. And that's going to be the, the biggest tip I can give you. Any new budget camera video coming soon? Well, probably not anytime soon. If I do pick up an EOS M, I might make a video on that just because that's kind of what started my whole YouTube career. I think my first big video that kind of blew up was that video of me with the EOS M and the horrible haircut. <laughs> so if I do end up getting the EOS M, then I'll make a video on that. But that's probably the only camera that I can see myself picking up in the near future. All right, I have a 700D Canon and have a small place. How can I improve video quality? Shoot in the lowest ISO, get as good a lens as you can afford and, and give that sensor a lot of light because those older Canon sensors need a lot of light. So I would say just get some good lights and try to expose it well because if you're underexposed, you're gonna get a lot of grain and it's gonna degrade the quality of your videos. Why haven't you showcased the Sigma 18 to 35 speed booster combo? I have showcased that at least once or twice on my channel. I've talked about the Sigma 18 to 35 and the Vilchox EF-M2 Mark II on my channel before. And I like that. I also had the Metabones with my GH3 for a while and I loved that combo. It's just a really big lens. So like taking it anywhere is just kind of, I don't know, like like with the speed booster and like the Sigma and then your variable ND, it's, it, it's huge. And I had that set up for the Blackmagic Pocket Original too, which I loved. Like the Blackmagic Pocket Original with the Blackmagic Pocket Original specific speed booster and the Sigma 18 to 35 was like a dream setup. Like looked really good, shooting 10 bit, like it was perfect in my opinion, but it's just really awkward to shoot with. And that lens is just really big and heavy. Why do you think people upgrade cameras when their cameras that are old still work? I think people that upgrade their cameras do it because it's a business decision. So if you're, you know, getting hired to shoot higher end projects and you're still showing up with a T2I, it's probably not the best business decision. If you're getting paid, you know, 10 grand to film a commercial, you're not going to show up with a T2I. You're going to, you know, show up with like a FX3 or FX6 or, you know, a Blackmagic Ursa or something like that. You're going to provide the clients what they're actually expecting. And I think that kind of goes back to what I was talking about with Tyler is that like the clients want to feel like they're taken care of. So when it comes to like doing client work, I would definitely say that your camera matters. You know, like even if it's just for optics, like if it's just for people looking at you and thinking that, you know, you really have what is needed to create that project. That's kind of, I think, why people upgrade their cameras or they just have features that they need. So if you're a YouTuber and you're shooting with a T2i that doesn't have good autofocus, so they'll upgrade to, you know, an M50 Mark II or an EOS R or something like that because they need good autofocus because they make YouTube videos for a living. So those are some of the reasons why I think people upgrade their cameras, even if their old cameras still work just fine. All right. And the last question is best mic for podcasts. Well, I honestly 
probably couldn't tell you. I'm not the best podcaster and the mics that I've been using have not been the best. In fact, I was even thinking to myself, I listen to the Wandering DP podcast a lot. It's funny because the host, Patrick O'Sullivan, his audio always sounds way better than everyone that he brings on as a guest. And I've been looking back at my podcast episodes when I've had guests on and it's been the opposite. Like my guests have had way better audio than I've had. So it's almost like the opposite of his. But I mean, the mic that I'm using right now is a shotgun microphone designed for cameras that I'm using as a podcasting microphone because it's also USB compatible and it can be used on your computer or like an iPad. So it's kind of cool. This is like a multi-purposed, you know, microphone that I can use on my camera or my podcast. But if you want to know the best microphones for podcasting, then I would suggest going to Patrick Tomaso's YouTube channel. And Patrick has a great video on how to start a podcast with some pretty cheap microphones. And since the person who is asking this question is from Brazil, I'll just say, vai para canal de Patrick Tomaso. Ele tem ótimos vídeos em micro Phones. Anyways, I think that's all of the questions that I have for this podcast. If you have stuck around this long, mad props. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. And yeah, if you'd like to support this podcast and get some extra perks as well as just being able to interact with me a little bit more, you can join me on Patreon and that link will be in the show notes below. But yeah, thank you so much for listening. And hopefully in September, we'll have another special guest. So yeah, thanks again for listening and I'll catch y'all next time. Later. Later.